Rarely before have asset prices been so high when the future outlook is so uncertain. Where are things most likely to head from here? To answer that question, at the recent Wealthion conference earlier this month, we brought together two of the internet's most respected macro analysts, Grant Williams and Stephanie Pomboy, to hash it all out for us. Grant sees inflation as the bigger danger, while Stephanie is still more concerned about deflation. But despite their differing approaches, they both see a lot of similarities in how investors should prepare today for what's coming next. If you missed the conference, well then today's your lucky day, as we're making this great meeting of the minds available to you right now. I am a proponent of the deflation before inflation thesis. And I guess it's, I, I'm more worried than I was then that I'm potentially right about inflation coming back. Um, because the, the, the kind of the, the problems it'll cause seem to be increasing. I am so excited for this next segment featuring two of my all time favorite macro analysts. And the fact that they're close friends is just icing on the cake. Stephanie Pomboy is the founder of economic research firm Macro Mavens, whose clients include the largest US mutual funds, investment management firms, and global hedge funds. Grant Williams has spent over 30 years in finance and is one of the most extremely respected financial commentators today, producing the Things That Make You Go Hmm newsletter, uh, the new and excellent Grant Williams podcast, and co-founding the highly influential financial interview series, Real Vision. If you've ever heard the super terrific Happy Hour podcast, you already know that Grant and Stephanie are magic when combined together. I was so excited they agreed to, uh, to agree to join our conference and provide us with our very own super terrific half hour of their wit and wisdom. Stephanie, Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Please, thanks for having us. Hey Adam, this is Steph. We, we've got to pretend to like each other for another half an hour. Can we manage it? <laughs> All right. Well, let's just dive right in. Guys, let's roll up our sleeves and get macro here. Grant, the last time that you and I talked, which was back in 2020, um, you were raising concerns about coming inflation pressures, uh, which are certainly manifesting now. So you, I think, were spot on with those concerns. Stephanie, when you and I talked earlier this year, you said that you think deflation will remain the dominant trend over the long term due to debt and demographics. Um, how, if at all, has each of your outlooks evolved since we last spoke? Stephanie, let's start with you. Uh, okay, well, way to throw me right into the frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say uh, ladies first. I was trying to be chivalrous. But. No, I appreciate it. So, uh, and then Grant can uh, take apart everything that I'm about to say. But um, I guess, you know, um, maybe it's pigheadedness. My, my view hasn't really changed very much since you and I talked. I mean, I think what has changed is just that the the inflation numbers that were uh, certainly going to come through the pipeline have done so. We've seen, obviously, um, some really hot headline inflation figures, and uh, it's sort of turned up the heat on this whole debate as to whether it's inflation or deflation or what. Um, and I guess, you know, I putting a pin in that whole secular uh, debt and demographic long-term question, which is, you know, what I think ultimately will prevent a broad transmission of inflation. I guess, you know, to start, we should acknowledge that the Fed has created hyperinflation 
it's just not in the measure that they focus on. You know, we've had hyperinflation in financial assets for years. And part of the problem is that they conveniently don't include that in the measure that they are focused on. And so that's why we ping pong from one asset bubble to another, because they myopically focus on this nonsensical you know, consumer price index and nothing's happening there. So they keep printing money and money. And eventually, you know, we end up having some massive bubble burst that ends up pushing us back into, into deflation. But so I sort of think we're on that same lather, rinse, repeat scenario right now, um, while acknowledging that you've seen this huge increase in commodity costs and input prices in general. And I, you know, I keep coming back to the million dollar question, especially with the markets where they are, is will those higher input costs be able to be passed along. Um, and so far, you know, the evidence is really spotty. I mean, in the latest inflation numbers that we got, the PPI, the producer price index, is going up three percentage points faster year on year than the consumer price index. So, you know, I look at this as a crude proxy for profit margins. And I say, you know, I don't know what people are smoking if they think S&P earnings after being up 34% this year, are gonna be up another 13% next year. Cause I just don't see where all that inflation input price pressure is gonna be able to pass through. Um, and I guess, you know, I'll let Grant crap all over that, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I would just say, uh, you know, the jury's still out on it. But what I am struck by is that uh, the consumer spending, the, the willingness of consumers to absorb all these higher prices appears sort of uh, circumspect right now because the spending is only as good as the stimulus, it sure seems to me. Um, so unless you think that the, the stimulus is just gonna keep coming new checks every month, um, you know, I'm sort of uh, still bearish on that profit margin outlook and the ability for all these prices to be passed along. <sighs> Your turn, Grant. <laughs> all right, over to me. Well, I, I, th we, yeah, I think the question, Adam, was how, how has my view changed? Um, and I guess it's, I, I'm more worried than I was then that I'm potentially right about inflation coming back um, because the, the, the kind of, the, the problems it'll cause seem to be increasing by the day. But at the same time, you know, I listen to people like Steph and Rosie and Lacey Hunt who make an incredibly credible um, case for, as Steph has just done there, that the only things I would point out in what, Steph says, which are all absolutely right, the, the things I can see kind of derailing them potentially. One, you've got this enormous buildup of savings. Uh, and two, you've got uh, kind of reopening of economies. And we've already seen that people who are now kind of freed from, from quarantines and lockdowns and restrictions are happy to pay higher prices to get back to doing stuff that they were doing before. I, I saw that in the UK um, last month when I was over there seeing my, my, my kids. Um, so you've, you've got people who are, are kind of turning a short-term blind eye to higher prices because they just want to get back out and spending. And if you listen to a lot of the conference calls that companies put uh, at, through this last earnings season, you heard time and time again, to Steph's point, that you know, we have these cost pressures, input cost pressures, and we're struggling with them. But if you give companies a window to pass those on to consumers, they will, they will take advantage of that. And it, and it may just be a short-term phenomenon, but I think you're gonna see that window appearing. The other thing I would say is that we've, we've kind of reached the point now in the cycle where 
you know, the cycle tends to go, you get price increases and then people demand wage increases and then the wage increases come through and that's what really kind of gets the fire going. We haven't seen this wage increase cycle happen at all. In fact, it, it, it's been a, a clear problem for many, many years now that wages haven't gone up in, in, in line with uh, price increases. But what we're starting to see in the age of virtue signaling are companies increasing what you know we saw mcdonald's recently increase wages we've seen uh, amazon increase wages walmart talking about increasing wages and it's now become a virtue signaling thing to do it's now not going to be left until the, it's necessarily the last thing we need to do to cut into our profits it's going to be well, we can't we can't not increase our wages because all the cool companies all the good companies are increasing wages so that social virtue signaling pressure is starting to be felt by companies as well and so we may just get that increase in wages which the profits of the last several years would suggest that they can afford to 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 do steph's point about profit margins going forward is absolutely crucial to understand though and i think what that means to me is if we do get this inflationary pulse lengthen out um we're not going to get the traditional run-up in equities just because it's an inflationary response we're going to start to see companies suffer massive hits to their margins and massive hits to their profits so it won't just be a case of oh if we get inflation you can own the stock market like they did in venezuela and everything will be okay okay all right that's a great point and a great segue into my next question for you guys um i, I do want to make one observation on on the wage inflation um which is uh we may also get wage inflation because uh a lot of companies are finding and a lot of the ones you mentioned which hire a lot of you know lower skilled workers um they're they're having to offer higher wages now yeah. to compete with the stimulus that folks you know, the checks that people are getting as part of their you know unemployment insurance checks um so you know there's it's interesting how the stimulus is almost driving wage inflation uh by keeping people out of the uh the employment force um but okay so if if you do believe that uh profit margins are going to get hit and, and i do have to react to something that stephanie said you know about the um this sort of cost push inflation that's going on um you know when you look at charts of uh real things you know major commodities that we we use in our daily lives um you know lumber to build things uh, or to uh or steel uh you know to to manufacture things or the food that we eat agricultural commodities they are up double digits or triple digits in the past year right and yet the cpi you know has on a relative basis you know sort of barely budged um, and I just saw a chart today of um, steel futures that showed that they have quadrupled since the beginning of 2021, right? So th there's some point at which you, A, they're going to have to pass some of that on to the consumer, but there's, there's some part of it that they're just not because people aren't going to be able to afford to pay quadruple you know, what they were paying beforehand on a sustainable basis. So um, tying this all back to your point, Grant, I think it's probably a pretty... Um, accurate prediction that profit margins are going to get hit because of these higher commodity prices and potentially this, these higher wages that are going to be going forward. Um, I don't know if that's the pin or not, but the question that I'm taking way too long getting to is when you look at today's asset price levels uh, and current valuations, or maybe I should say current levels of overvaluations, because most assets are historically at the highest levels of valuation they've ever been. Um, uh, do you see a reckoning here as inevitable um, or have prices reached some new world order? You know, maybe the stimulus just never stops and things get propped up. You mentioned the Venezuelan stock market. Um, 
so I guess the question is, is when you hear people like Jeremy Grantham, you know, who's basically saying, well, we've seen these economic conditions before, we've always had a 50 plus percent market correction soon after, um, or guys like David Hunter, who's speaking at this conference, who has an even more dire uh, market prediction. Um, do you see the risk that they're warning of uh, as really credible? Or do you think that, you know, I hate to use the words this time is different, but, but is, is there a way that we could avoid falling from these incredibly um, stretched heights that we're at right now? Grant, let's how start with you. We'll, we'll how, short answer, how short an answer do you want to that? Because I can give you <laughs> one word if you want. Sure, um, start, start with one word and yeah. go from there. Look, uh, no, I, I don't think, I don't think there's, there's a way to, to um, avoid a, a reckoning. The question is, what does a reckoning look like? Um, you know, if you look at what's caused these prices, it's all artificial. It's all stimulus. It's all monetary policy. It's all QE. It's everything about it is artificial. There's there's really nothing real about it. Even the even the the, the spikes we're seeing now, it's not real. It's not real economic activity driving this 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 stuff, right? Um, it's a relative expansion from last year when the entire global economy was shut down, and that, so that shouldn't surprise anybody. But of course, when you look at those lumber futures, when you look at the iron ore, I, I saw that. Uh, cold rolled steel uh, numbers as the same as you did adam today um there's so much speculation in that there is so much uh people piling into the futures markets and hoping to make money that it distorts all the data which which is a huge problem but um look jeremy's work in terms of understanding what the the, the expected returns are going to be over the next 10 years has been excellent over the years and he's talking now about a negative return in the s p over over the next 10 years and the case he makes is very compelling. I, I know David as well, and another incredibly thoughtful uh, man. I haven't heard his his uh, his latest prognostication, but I will listen to it very very carefully because I know the the amount of work that will go that will go into it. But I think anytime you think that we'll get a different outcome when the entire thing is based upon human behavior, it's just a foolish bet to make. It'll it'll be slightly slightly different variant to to use a COVID sensitive term. But um, but it won't be different because we're not different, and so the 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 greed and the fear will will come back just like they always do. All right, Stephanie, what do you think? Do do investors uh, do they need to be prepared for some sort of market break at some point in the near future? Well, I totally agree with Grant. I think that uh, the odds that it's different this time are uh, pretty close to zero. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I think this is just lather, rinse, repeat in terms of the Fed inflating a bubble and then, you know, turning a blind eye to all the pressures that are inevitably going to cause it to burst. And this is going to sound maybe too cute by half, but um, a thesis that I've been sort of focused on or attempting to push is uh, the idea that all the stimulus is actually a tax. Um, and you alluded to one uh, facet of that, and that is if companies have to compete with the government to get people off the sofa, um, when they can just sit at home and collect checks every month, um, that's a tax on, on the business um, in terms of essentially a, a imposed minimum wage. Um, and obviously all the input costs that we've talked about already are a tax. Um, but the largest tax of all is the endless money printing and what it's doing to the value of the dollar. So, you know, I think uh, we will have profit disappointment, which will um, sort of uh, pull the curtain and expose that yawning gap between uh, perception and reality as, as relates to the stock market's valuation. 
But even if the stock market is able to just kind of churn sideways, which seems like an incredible feat of gravitational daring do, um, in terms of the dollar, it is going to be really deflating, although no one will recognize that unless they're looking at the market relative to something like gold, for example, and, and looking at a real value of the market. So I think, you know, again, the, the idea that the stimulus is really a tax, um, whether you see it visibly in terms of higher steel prices, higher um, wage costs, et cetera, or it's invisible via the dollar uh, debasement and, and, you know, stocks basically tread water, but in real terms are, are uh, deflating. Uh, we're going to see some real uh, reckoning from all of this stimulus. I don't think there's any avoiding that. All right. And the stimulus itself, I mean, that really has been the, the, the big trend over the past year, you know, especially a lot of it preceded COVID, but it's just been on steroids since. Uh, do you see that as a permanent feature of the system now? Um, you know, has the system become so dependent upon it that they really can't stop doing it going forward? Um, Steph, why don't, why don't you, since you mentioned it, why don't you react and then we'll go to Grant. Well, I do think it's going to be um, perpetual. I, the monetary stimulus, I've always thought was going to be perpetual just because there's no one else who can support the deficit financing right now. We've seen uh, a real global diversification away from the dollar, and that's only accelerating as they continue on this course. And we can't stand to have a natural level of interest rates given the enormous debt burden that we have here. I mean, we saw what happened when uh, the 10-year yield got back to 3% burst the energy bubble in 2018 when the Fed deigned to you know, unwind QE. Uh, rates backed up and that caused the meltdown in, in fourth quarter of 18. So we just don't have the ability to handle any backup in rates. And the only way to prevent that is for the Fed to continue to sop up all of our treasury issuance. Um, what's new, I think, is that fiscal stimulus is also going to be perpetual in my view. Um, and obviously the last few months sort of uh, bolster that case. But I think what's going to happen, and again, I'm pushing this theory that the, the stimulus is actually taxed, is that people will discover that unless you're sending a check to somebody every month, they're going to assume that this is temporary. And so there isn't going to be a sustained, durable recovery because of the stimulus that they're doing right now. Um, and they're just going to conclude, I think it took Pelosi about five seconds after that dismal payroll employment report, that clearly they haven't done enough. They need to do more. So every time we get a disappointing headline, it's going to be a rationale for more fiscal stimulus, which the Fed will have to monetize. And I think we'll just keep going on around and around on that. Um, and as Grant mentioned, you know, the, the real fundamental economy isn't improving at all through all this. It's all artificial stimulants. But right now, that's, that's all we got. All right, Grant, as you react to that, um, if, if you can um, comment on the fact that, uh, uh, you know, you just floated that, uh, I think, another $6 trillion infrastructure package. So, so my question is, is um, if Stephanie, you know, sees that it's sort of a permanent feature and the anti keeps get, getting ramped up like that, um, 
what are the limits, if any, of, of, of the central planner's ability to just keep on doing this? Um, is there a point at which this just breaks, no matter how much they print? Well, look, I don't, I don't think there's a limit to how long they'll keep doing this, but there's a limit to how long it works. Right? They're, they're, the, they're the two differences that, that people need to understand. Um, I think Steph's absolutely right. I think we are, the Fed's balance sheet ain't ever going back down again. Um, that's for sure. They're going to keep increasing it. Uh, and if they manage to find windows where they can taper a little bit, they may well try and do that and, and be kind of opportunistic with it. But they're going to be forced back to the table. And, and Steph's absolutely right. The, now, now the fiscal spigots have been opened. You know, it's very difficult to take free money away from people. Once you start giving free money to the markets, as we saw, uh, which is what QE effectively was, we've seen every, temp, uh, every tantrum that's been thrown by the markets every time that they've tried to take free money away from markets. And we're going to have that exact same cycle happen um, with the fiscal stimulus and, and the recipients of the stimulus checks. You know, they will, people get very used to this stuff and start to depend on it very, very quickly. And their spending habits change and they don't take that money and, and think, oh, wow, how lucky am I to get this? They start thinking, wow, great. I can do this every week now. And so look, they, they are, they're, they're making the same mistakes that always get made by policymakers in these situations, they start to try and address long-term problems with short-term solutions. And the long-term solution is, unfortunately, uh, a prolonged period of, of economic hardship to try and redress the damage that's been done over the last 25, 30 years. That's, that's the problem and that's the solution. But politically, that's not an acceptable solution. So we, we will keep doing what we're doing you know we, we, we've 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 gotten used to this phrase kicking a can down the road which is what's been happening because no politician is going to make the kind of decisions that that need to be made because they're they're, they're suicide politically so you can expect this to continue until it no longer works and that's the point that we all kind of need to have a plan for because it, it'll it'll likely happen quite quickly all right i want to get to the plan in just a second but let's let's talk for a minute about till it no longer works um I was interviewing uh, Diego Perea from uh, Quadrigraph Funds the other day, and you know, he mentioned that the Fed is really trying to kind of keep the system um, within, it has to keep the system basically within this band where, uh, you know, if inflation begins to run too hot, right, um, the Fed then has to tighten. And if it tightens, uh, the system begins collapsing immediately, right? And so uh, you, you could expect, you know, this sort of you're stuck in this volatile period where tightening, you know, easing, tightening, easing, tightening, easing. And he's, the Fed's really trying to avoid doing that, right? It's really trying to finesse sort of a smooth glide path. But we have these inflationary pressures that we were talking about earlier. We also have interest rates out there, right? I mean, it, we've come to the point where we believe that, that the central planners really have them under their thumb. But, you know, rates have risen, you know, notably over the past uh, nine months or so. Um, and there is potentially, uh, you tell me, is there a credible chance of them actually breaking out and enforcing the Fed's hand sooner than the Fed wants. So I guess my question is, is um, what do you think are the biggest proponents of, when you say this works until it doesn't, um, of actually you know, ending the e efficacy of what the, the central planners are doing here? Grant, you're on mute. Okay. Just think for a second about this idea of, of a system and what a system is, right? What we're talking about here in terms of the financial system is you know, a set of rules that have evolved over the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years 
but within which uh, billions of human beings operate on a daily basis. So just think about the idea that a group of unelected officials can control that system. So when Diego talks about what they need to try and do, he's absolutely right. They need to try and do it. But, but what chance do you have to, to control a system such as this, that, that's, that's 70 years old, and you know, during that 70 years, it's constantly evolved and adapted. And generally speaking, financial systems are pushing the boundaries the entire time, and policymakers are always reacting and trying to either close loopholes or, or fix problems that human ingenuity engineers for them. So, so to think that they can do what Diego suggests and you know, somehow create this glide path um, and control rates, which and control the reaction to those rates in just such a way that they can kind of stick this landing and, you know, gently repair. I mean, it's farcical. It's absolutely farcical. There is there is no way it's possible without, unfortunately, some egregious steps being taken under pressure, like capital controls, like yield curve control, like the again more artificial. Um, interaction with the market to try and stem the natural places that, that the system wants to go. So that's, to me, the period we're entering now. We're entering the period where that control that they've managed to, to hang on to by their fingernails for the last several years is running into this problem of potential rising rates. And as Steph said earlier on, the system cannot withstand higher rates. We just can't do it. It's just unthinkable now. So what do you do at that point? And that's the point where instead of trying to gently finagle this whole thing as they've been able to do, when that doesn't work, they have to say, well, if we let rates rise, the entire system blows up, right? There isn't anything in the world now that isn't dependent upon lower rates forever. The housing market is gone. The stock market's gone. The bond market's gone. If rates rise, the government's finances are gone very quickly. So higher rates are not an option. And if the system, and by the system, I mean the natural forces that operate within that want to push rates higher, what choice do you have? You have to do something artificial to try and maintain control of that system, which will be financial repression, the overt kind, and it will be you know, mandated bond holdings for pension funds to try and soak up the supply, and it will be yield curve control, and will be all these things. But of course, the reaction to that from the system and the participants within it is likely to be, well, we're going to want to own a lot more gold. We're not going to want to own dollars. So you know, the currency is where this is most likely going to be felt. Um, so I, I just I just think at this point in time, we've we've just reached that period where they are going to continue to try and keep the thing together, but it's becoming more obvious to more people on a daily basis just how impossible a task that's going to be for them. All right, Stephanie, I see a lot of nodding on your end as Grant was saying that. What what would you like to add to his answer? Well, he's far more polite than I am when he, <laughs> when, when he describes the idea that the policymakers can maintain this perfect path as farcical. I mean, I was thinking to myself, if you were to gather together 12 bigger magoos than the people at the Federal Reserve, you would be really hard pressed. I mean, they have proven to miss every single opportunity to get it right. I mean, far from sticking the landing, they fall flat on their face every single time. Um, and I think it's not even that they're maintaining this glide path right now. It's the illusion that they are the ones maintaining it, when in reality, it's this confidence that mystifies me that they are somehow controlling things. 
they're not controlling diddly squat, but that markets believe that they are. And therefore the illusion that these guys actually have some great insight and gift for controlling our outcomes and navigating us past any you know, rocky shoal, um, that's what's sustaining the market right now. And so I think that, again, I'm mystified as to how it's held together this long, but they are starting to, you know, there are more people who are expressing some uh, suspicion that maybe the folks at the Fed aren't going to be able to pull this one off. Um, and as more and more people come around to that view, uh, their ability to maintain this illusion is going to disappear. And I guess I keep coming back to the idea that it's not going to happen domestically. Uh, I think it's going to be some foreigners, and I keep you know, China obviously immediately comes to mind saying, look, you know, you guys, you can't continue to base your currency endlessly and we just continue to abide this. So we're going to, you know, start looking at alternatives. And the fact is that silently they're doing a lot of stuff that hasn't received the attention it should have. Um, number one, allowing a massive appreciation in the B, or basically accommodating this dollar decline, whereas in the past they wouldn't have. Um, and one of the reasons they're doing that, I think, is that it's an excellent opportunity to stock up on all the resources, you know, with these dollars that are, yeah. you know, now it's super cheap for them. So they're backing up the truck. And they're seizing this opportunity. So I think those moves um, should be getting a little bit more attention. And I think they're an indication of this waning um, tolerance for the Fed's endless uh, debasement efforts globally. Um, but you know, I may be jumping ahead or imposing my own expectation on it. But um, suffice to say, uh, no, I don't think they're going to be able to maintain any kind of uh, glide path for any time. I, I'm just shocked that we've gotten to this point um, without any hiccups yet. But, I, I, you know, on a side note, I um, would highlight in March, we had a huge sell-off in the 10-year treasury. Uh, that's when treasury yields peaked at, I think, one and three quarters, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and we just found out from the uh, monthly capital flows report, which were just reported now for March, that in the month that the treasury yield got absolutely hammered, treasury, treasury bonds got hammered and yields shot higher, we had a record amount of foreign purchases of our treasuries in that month. So it just highlights the delicate situation that you were talking about, where even a month where, for whatever reason, foreigners came rushing in here to buy our treasuries, we couldn't prevent yields from rising. So the idea that the Fed is in control of what's going on is just so laughable or farcical to borrow <laughs> Grant's phrase. Um, it, it blows my mind. But anyway. Right. Hey, Steph, at, at least we now have we now have a name for our band. I think we I think we call it the Big Magoos. The Big Magoos. I can see I can see this being a huge hit. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, I think that's the great. The monetary magoos. Right? <laughs> the macro magoos. That's there you go. Right. We hope you've been enjoying this excellent back and forth between Grant Williams and Stephanie Pomboy. The interview continues in part two, where Grant and Stephanie share their guidance on which asset classes appear prudent, given the highly uncertain environment now facing today's investors. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of the video below 
or head over to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to click the subscribe button below if you haven't already, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Oh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who takes into consideration the macro risks and opportunities mentioned here by Grant and Stephanie, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help you set one up. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our interview with Grant Williams and Stephanie Pomboy.